So excited to be uh, with you all this morning and to continue this study. I got to ride with Aaron to uh, the Calvary Oregon Pastors Conference uh, last Sunday, and he filled me in on how the teaching through Smyrna went. Was excited to have him uh, teach. It's interesting to see the theme that's been going through these teachings. Seems like the Lord is really making us aware of our culture that we live in and how the word is um, applying to it in our day and age. And if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This would be the letter from Jesus. It's pretty incredible to read a letter from Jesus. And it's to a church in Asia Minor called the church in Thyatira. And let me read it. You guys can follow along. It'll be our text for this morning. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but fold, hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Quick question for you. How many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but 15,738,283 have to vote it in. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Nine, one to change it, and eight to raffle the old one off. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to cast it out, and two to catch it when it falls. Got to think about that, don't you? How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? What's change? How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? Light bulb? What's a light bulb? How many Church of Christ members does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but if anyone else tries to do it, the light won't come on. And how many Calvary Chapel pastors does it take to change a light bulb? 
one, but he's going to be 30 minutes late getting there to do it. We call it Calvary Chapel time. Okay. Anyways, we are studying the letters to the seven churches. And if you'll hop back a chapter to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, we have what's called the divine outline. The divine outline really breaks the book of Revelation up into three sections. It'll help us understand the book of Revelation uh, and, and these three sections are, to John the Revelator, write the things which you have seen. We understand that to be that he has seen Jesus. John the Revelator was all about that he was an eyewitness. He writes about it in his gospel. He writes about it in his epistles. He was stoked to be an eyewitness of Jesus. And in chapter one of the book of Revelation, he saw Jesus. And so, Uh, Write the things which you have seen, and we have an incredible revelation of Jesus in chapter 1. And then he's told to write the things which are, what is currently taking place. And it's what many believe to be the church age. It's chapters 2 and 3. The things that are, are the churches that are happening. And of course, currently that was happening. There were present churches in Asia Minor that John was writing these letters to. Some believe that each one of these churches is a bit of a snapshot of the panoramic picture of church history. And so Ephesus would have been the first century church since the day of Pentecost through the first century, the darling church in her infancy who had left her first love. Smyrna uh, would have been the persecuted church of the first and second centuries, uh, a church that there were no corrections written to from Jesus. They had been purified through suffering. And of course, we know in church history, there was that era of uh, persecution against Christians in a major way. Uh, Some would say that the letter to the church in Pergamos uh, speaks of the age of reign of Constantine and how in church history, he really stopped persecution against Christians and actually made Christianity uh, the Roman religion. But with that, he also brought a compromise and uh, he would often mix and blend many of the Roman pagan practices in with the Christian practices. Uh, Some would say that Thyatira that we'll be studying today is a representation of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Thyatira is two Greek words which mean uh, um, uh, continual sacrifice, a bit of a foreshadowing of the Catholic Mass that offers again and again and again uh, the body and blood of Jesus there through transubstantiation as the priest uh, causes the actual bread and the actual cup to become the actual blood and body of Jesus again and again and again. Uh, some would say that, that is a, it's a picture of the Catholic Church, the Thyatira, and many of the issues and corrections and hope that would be written there. Um, but Jesus is an equal opportunity corrector and blesser. And uh, you go on into the church of Sardis, which some would say is a snapshot of the Protestant Reformation, uh, and then the deadness that came after that as they would maybe depart from the word and the work of the spirit. Uh, We have the letter to the church in Philadelphia, which would be a snapshot of the faithful church in the last days. And then finally, the church in Laodicea, the lukewarm church. So uh, I've often really hammered those things, that panoramic picture. But as I'm just learning and wanting to really be faithful to the text As I'm studying, I just can't get there in my hammering on it. I'm not really sure that's what the scriptures are saying as you get to them. 
Uh, are they interesting thoughts? And, and does it kind of cause you to dive into some church history studying? Absolutely. In fact, I would recommend the Church History Podcast, formerly known as Communo Sanctorum. You may look that up. And it's by Lance Ralston, who is a Calvary Chapel pastor. I didn't even know that when I started listening to it. It is a phenomenal church history podcast. You will love it. So I encourage you to uh, get on your podcast, check that out, and, uh, and learn a little bit about church history. One way or another, it definitely seems to be breaking up the outline of Revelation, the things which are the church age. It's interesting, 19 times does the word church appear in chapters 2 and 3 until chapter 4 something happens where John says that a door opens in heaven and a voice as a trumpet shouts out, come up here. And boom, immediately John is in the presence of the Lord. I think that that is a foreshadowing, a picture, a prophecy of the rapture of the church. Chapters 4 and 5 are future things, the things which will take place after that, the divine outline says. And in that, uh, you have the throne room of heaven and the worship of the saints and the angels, of the, the glory of the Lord. And then move into chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation, which are the great tribulation periods. So much to say, not enough time today uh, to get into maybe what that looks like. Uh, followed by uh, the judgment of the world, the return of Christ, the, um, the millennial reign of Christ, the final condemnation of Satan, and uh, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, paradise forever with Jesus and each other. So that's just a little bit of a breakdown of the book of Revelation, and I'm sure you could all quote it back to me with ease. But... Revelation 1, 19, the divine outline. Get to know that. The things which are, picture of Jesus, seeing Jesus uh, in all of his glory. The things, uh, that was the things which you've seen. The things which are, the church age, and the things which will take place after the church age. The rapture of the church, throne room of heaven, great tribulation, second coming of Jesus, millennial reign, new heaven, new earth, so on and so forth. That's like five weeks out. We'll be there, you know, before you, before you know it. I digress. To the church in Thyatira. The main idea is that the church that tolerates false teaching and corrupt morality will receive judgment, while those who hold fast to the true gospel will receive the ultimate reward. These are actually main ideas that seem to be common throughout many of these letters to the churches that belief in the right biblical things will lead to right biblical behavior. But when you compromise doctrine, which are right teachings about God, and you compromise morality that comes from those teachings about God, uh, you become sick, weak, and you set yourself up for judgment. This church in Thyatira has an angel over it. Perhaps it's their guardian angel. The language is translated messenger, or even in some lexicons, pastor. And uh, I've always understood that it was a letter to a pastor, uh, someone who would be bringing the word before the people, teaching and reading and seeking to understand these things uh, to that pastor in the church in Thyatira. He will get the letter. He will read the letter out. And we want to know, what is this city? It'll help us to understand the context as we understand 
Who is Thyatira? What is this town or city like? Thyatira was one of the smaller, less impressive cities of the Roman Empire. It was the place of a Roman garrison. There was a military outpost. uh, But it was primarily known for um, its wool production, its its garment industry, um, and being able to sell in mass quantities uh, dyed purple and scarlet wool and fabrics. Uh, When you hear of Thyatira and when you hear of dyed fabrics to be sold, you may be reminded of the one other place in scripture where Thyatira is mentioned. Anybody? Thyatira. Who said that? Did you really? Oh, come on. Mom, was it you? All right. She said Lydia. Lydia. Acts chapter 16, in Macedonia, as Paul is called to go to Europe, to Macedonia, there was a women's prayer meeting going on. And there was a woman in that prayer meeting named Lydia, and she heard the gospel. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And she was someone who worshipped God, although incompletely. She was kind of a Cornelius She was someone who had not yet heard of the gospel. And it says that the Lord opened up Lydia's heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And so kind of a neat thing is, is that in church history, probably the church in Thyatira began through the ministry and witness of Lydia from Acts chapter 16. Kind of an exciting thing. Now, with the great industry of wool and fabrics and, and that being dyed, came labor unions. Woo, woo. Okay, some of you are so excited about labor unions. Well, back in the day, they were called guilds, labor unions or guilds, and they were very popular. In fact, they were mandatory things for communities to be involved in. And it might sound nice at first. There were community barbecues, which who doesn't love to get together for those with your, you know, fellow work and employees, uh, you know, play a game of softball. But the, they were not so much barbecues as they were idolatrous feasts that were mandatory. With the feasts came sexual immorality. And the sources that I've read said so grotesque that we can't say it from the pulpit, Okay. Uh, And so there was a unique history moment there in Thyatira where Christians were getting saved and they were going to have to make decisions in their occupation. What do we do when it's time to go to the company picnic? You know, Um, are we going to be a part of this? And uh, these guilds and these unions were so controlling that, uh, of course, you would lose your job. You would be ostracized from the community and... uh, and it was, it was a difficult time for the church to determine what they were going to do in their situation. It's been said, though, that Jesus wants you to be pure where you are planted. He wants you to honor him wherever your home is. And so, as we studied a few weeks ago in Pergamos, Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you live. I know you live in Thyatira. I know you live where these guilds are and all of that. I know the context of your community. Prineville, I know where you're at and I want you to be pure there. I want you to be pure where you're planted 
I know all the cultural context behind the things that stumble you and are thrown in front of you as hurdles, but I want holiness to be in your home. As Jesus goes on to write the letter, he says, these things says the son of God. Interesting that Jesus calls himself the son of God. Now, two titles for Jesus in the New Testament are son of man. And he would often refer to himself being the son of man. It was actually his favorite thing to call himself. The son of man is a reference to the book of Daniel. And it was a prophecy of the Messiah that he would be a ruler and he would have a throne over the whole world one day. So Jesus would call himself, he would reference, I'm the prophesied one from Daniel. I'm the son of man, but I'm also the son of God. I'm fully God and I'm fully man. I'm the God man. All right. And so here he says, in the only place in the book of Revelation, I am the son of God. Now, what that actually means is I am God. Okay. There's nothing confusing in it for a Jew who would hear that. They're not thinking that Jesus is calling himself a created being as the Jehovah's witnesses would say. They they would understand that by Jesus to say, I'm the son of God, I'm sent from God. I am God. In fact, when you you read the gospel of John, you can read about it in John 134, John 149, John 1036, John 197, John 2031. Jesus was all about, and the gospel of John is all about us knowing that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing that we would have life in his name. We would have life in his name because only the son of God would be holy enough and obedient enough to live a perfect sinless life, a life that is sacrificially pure to be offered up on an altar for the sins of the world. And if we would believe that that Jesus is that son of God, we would have life and forgiveness of sins through his name. When Jesus would call himself the son of God, the Jews would try to kill him because it was blasphemy. By you, they would say, by you, and let's, let me get there for you. <clears throat> uh, well, first of all, John 10, 36 says it. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Ten chapters later in John nineteen seven. I guess that's nine chapters later if you're technical. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. It was known that Jesus was claiming to be God when he referred to himself as the son of God. And here in Revelation, a post-death, post-resurrection, post-ascension, In glory, Jesus says, I am the son of God. It's a little bit of a play on words because the Thyatirans, I guess I will call them, worshipped Apollos, the sun god. He was piddly and he was weak and he was temporal in comparison to the son of God, who was eternal, who is glorious, who is mighty, and who is powerful. One man said, Apollo is a piddly, pathetic, pseudo-sun god, while Jesus is the eternal and majestic son of God. I like the play on words, don't you? 
helps me remember it. Well, this son of God also says about himself, I have eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. It's a reference to Revelation chapter 1 when John saw Jesus, and this was a little bit of something he saw about Jesus. He saw Jesus with the eyes like a flame of fire. He saw Jesus with feet like fine brass. Now, if you could use your imagination, as you see Jesus in your imagination with eyes like a flame of fire, what does that do to your heart? Some have said it displays the fire of searching, purifying, and penetrating judgment. It speaks of his omniscience, his penetrating, perceptive, and piercing ability to see all that is. He also is referred to having feet with fine burnished bronze. Thyatira was famous for its bronze work. But their best work pales in comparison to these bronze feet of Jesus. It's been said in this picture, he is brilliant in appearance, unrivaled in strength, and utterly glorious as a judge. Daniel, in chapter 10, verse 6, when he sees the, the Lord, says that his body was like beryl. His body was like beryl. And all of these different um, explanations of Jesus in his glory, even in the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verse 15 of Revelation says that his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And I'm going to quote Clark again. I I quoted him when we were in chapter 1. But Clark says, the fine burnished bronze is an emblem of his stability and permanence. Brass being considered the most durable of all metallic substances and compounds. Also seeing Jesus with these fine brass sneakers on or, you know, whatever. uh, In Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 and then later in Revelation chapter 20, we see that, and if you'll go to the second half of the verse if it pops up on the screen. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And so if you imagine a wine press, uh, to us, a wonderful thing, you know, making grape juice, how wonderful is that, making wine? And yet, uh, we see that in a horrific sense, it's the wrath of God being poured out on the world. Later on in Revelation chapters uh, 19, we see him treading out uh, the, the wicked in a way that the blood will flow from that wine press to the height of horses' bridles. And that speaks of the Valley of Armageddon. We'll get there a couple weeks from now. Um, but today you would drive through the Valley of the Armageddon and you'll think, man, all these fields and lush crops and John Deere tractors that are driving around, then one day there will be blood up to the horse's bridle in this area. Makes you want to preach the gospel to be able to flee and, and turn to Jesus. But... Um, and so we know that, that are, those are descriptions of Jesus as we get into his, uh, his letter revealing what he knows about us as a church. And that kind of strikes some good, healthy fear and sobriety into our heart, knowing that he's looking at the church with eyes like a flame of fire. He knows our works. He knows what's going on. He's a righteous judge. He's immovable, unshakable, as Tatum sings, unshakable, you know, with those bronze feet. 
And, uh, and he has something to say to even us in Prineville today. Verse 19. Um, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So if you've been following these letters at all, so far the Lord seems to be pretty fair in his assessment of his people. Well, for Smyrna and Philadelphia, those are the two churches that he's only got good things to say about them. When he does even have to correct them and rebuke churches, uh, he's fair and he, he's able to see the good things, the things he can commend, the things that he can compliment. He's fair in his assessment, even if he's got to rebuke and correct them, something that we can learn uh, as we have the ministry of um, even confrontation and correction. But I know your works. I see them. I perceive them. I remember them. I'll even honor those works. The book of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your works and your labor of love, which you have shown in his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And so when we're serving the Lord and we're getting hot and sweaty and tired and burnt out in our ministries, it's okay. He knows. He's not going to forget. You know, I've got a 12-year-old son right now who's he's just a hardworking guy. He's capable. He gets given tasks around the house that the other younger siblings don't get. And sometimes it doesn't seem fair. Sometimes I expect more out of him. And I sometimes have to just tell him, look, son, I know that you did this. I know that you did a little more. I know that you worked a little harder. And don't worry. Like, I'm going to remember that when it's time for blessings in various ways. I'm also not Jesus. I might forget. You might, you know, uh, Anyways, let's move along. Verse 20, I think we were in. Uh, anytime I look underneath my deck and it's all clean now and all the lumber is stacked nicely, it's a reminder of a really hard job that him and Lainey both have done. But I know your works. I know your love. This is a very loving church. Your goodwill. And even as you look at this, you can see how, yeah, there, there are parallels to any church in any age. Um, but even the Roman Catholic Church, man, works and orphanages and soup kitchens and all of those sorts of things. And, and even love and goodwill. That's the purpose of the commandment, Paul tells Timothy, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. You might, might remember our first church we read about, Ephesus, and how they had left their first love and were solid in works. Something that we're going to see in contrast with Thyatira is they have a lot of love, but are neglecting good works of holiness. Ephesus lacked love. Thyatira lacked truth. And a healthy church needs both. I know your service and that there's ministry going on. There's contribution from you there. I, I know that you have faith. You believe God and you even exercise faith in so many ways. You put your money where your mouth is. It's the evidence of things not seen. There are good things when a church is stepping out in faith and believing God for the impossible. As Hebrews says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Uh, it's the, let's see, help me out here. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. 
It's the grip on our ketchup lid, you know, when we're trying to turn that ketchup lid and we can't get it. Faith comes in and where'd the grip come from? Faith kind of does that in our Christian life. We're able to accomplish great things as we trust in him. And he says, and as for your works, they're great. In fact, your last works are more than your first. You've been growing in good works. Good things have been happening more than before. The New Living Translation says, I can see your constant improvement in all these things. That's a pretty good thing. That's a pretty good thing to be constantly improving. And the New Testament speaks of that. The parable of the vine and the branches. that We are pruned that we may bear more fruit and grow in more fruit. Peter prays that we would grow in grace. It's been said, do good things and grow in good things. It's a wonderful goal for any church. There are good things happening in Thyatira, this land of labor unions and purple wool and Lydia's home, her whole family becoming Christians. Good things happening. But here we have some correction. In verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So in Thyatira, they were doing the right things for the right reasons, but they were also tolerating blatant sin. Blatant sin. They were allowing, and you might underline in your Bible, you allow something to happen. You tolerate, the ESV and the NIV say. You let certain things happen and permit them to happen. You leave them to be. What is this? Who is this? What, what are we tolerating? Well, there seems to be a specific person in mind um, that, that is personified even more with the description of the woman, Queen Jezebel, from the Old Testament. Maybe the woman's name was actually Jezebel here in Thyatira. It seems more certain, a descriptive title, rather than the woman's actual name. But if you've read your Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Kings, Jezebel was a wicked, wicked woman. She married the king of Israel, Ahab, who was known to be the most wicked king of all the kings of Israel. But when he married her, he became a puppet king and basically was manipulated by her to accomplish her agenda. She would raise up 450 prophets of Baal to eat at the king's table. He began to worship this uh, false god, Baal. And through Jezebel, they began to kill the prophets. They began to kill the prophets of God uh, until Elijah came and he proclaimed uh, a drought, a lack of rain. And you know the contest there on Mount Carmel and the eventual coming of the rain again. But at the contest of Mount Carmel, Elijah's victory brought the slaughter of those 450 false prophets of Baal. When Jezebel heard that her prophets had been killed, she was fuming and raging mad. And she said, hey, if you're not like one of the prophets by the end of the day, I just don't even know what I'm going to do. And uh, just an incredibly wicked woman. She was manipulative of her husband. She basically ran the nation of Israel into more idolatry. 
She would steal a good man's vineyard from him uh, through murder and give it to her husband. And the prophecies of her said that she would die a really a horrible death, that she would be eaten by dogs. And if you read her story there in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu, um, a, a righteous man who had his own blunders, though, uh, would come into a city where she was, and she knew she was going to die. She knew the prophecy. She knew Jehu, this mighty man, was going to kill. Uh, the prophecy was... Uh, uh, well, I, I'm sorry, I thought that's what was coming. I was going to read it to you guys. Um, the prophecy was fulfilled there in Second Kings chapter 9, and as Jezebel knew it was going to happen, she was up in a, like a castle tower, and she watched Jehu ride his chariot from a distance, like a, like a NASCAR speed racer. And uh, as she knew it was him that was coming, she powdered her face, and she put a ton of eye makeup on, okay? And... Uh, and as she hollered down at him, uh, she basically knew her fate, that she was going to die. And uh, her servants ended up throwing her out of the window. She was run over by Jehu's chariot. He went and had a little lunch after the hit and run, uh, came back after the hit and run and his lunch, and found that the wild dogs had fulfilled their part of the prophecy, had eaten her alive, and if I remember correctly, left only her palms of her hands there um, to be buried and make a nice memory plaque. Okay. Anyways, a wicked woman. Okay. You don't hear of many people naming their kids Jezebel. Okay. We don't recommend Jezebel around here. We don't recommend Delilah. Uh, these are not good little girl names. Okay. But of course God can redeem anything, but, um, Jezebel, not a good woman in the scriptures and, uh, a wicked woman over Israel, wicked leader of Israel. Uh, Here in the book of Revelation, she called herself a prophetess. Who who called her a prophetess? Herself. Isn't that great that we can just go ahead and, right? Like, I have great authority, everybody. Trust me, okay? Um, Self-exaltation, self-affirmation. It's interesting because the same type of stuff was going on in Corinth, and people were challenging Paul's apostleship, and Paul speaks about them, and he says, we are not, we do not dare class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us a sphere which especially includes you so so you know jezebel uh this same self-exaltation self-appointment even happens within christianity today Um, many people just um without any authority in their life without being a part of a local church and the new testament um example that we see there uh they just you know they call themselves apostles and prophets and they go from church to church and they really deceive and deceive others and uh, there's an unhealthy level of, um, of uh, theology, false theology in their life. And so we as a church, we watch out for those who would call themselves prophets, prophetesses. Um, and whenever you see that, there are also those that do not have a heart of submission to the authority of the word of God, but rather believe that their prophecies trump the word of God and they're not teachable, they're not correctable. Um, as we're called to be. 
Here Jezebel, this self-proclaimed prophetess, would teach and seduce. Jesus says, they're my servants. And you can almost hear a bit of that. They're mine. Who does she think she is? They're my servants. Just as we would be so angry if our children were, you know, buying into the filth and the garbage of the world as they were listening to those outside influences. My servants are being taught by Jezebel to commit sexual immorality, Jesus says, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. One man said, ironically, while the church may have been founded by the testimony of a woman, it was faltering because of the influence of this woman. However this woman did this, she was definitely an Old Testament Jezebel type. Cleverly deceptive. Manipulatively domineering. Viciously scheming. Spiritually idolatrous. Clearly a leader. People were following her. But leaders need to be tested. Someone should have stepped up and confronted her. But there was some sort of fear here where they were allowing this to take place. As you look at the culture of the day and in some of my readings, there's speculation that Jezebel or this woman or this leader, and, and the translation can actually even say your wife Jezebel, and so perhaps it was a pastor's wife that was leading women astray. Whoever it was, whatever it was, this, this Jezebel may have been seeing the labor unions and how they worked in that culture. And was just encouraging people, you know what, it's okay to just blend in. It's okay to just go ahead and be a part of this stuff. Just go to the feast. Just eat these things sacrificed to idols. It's no big deal. And you know what, when it comes hanky-panky time with the priest or priestess, you know, whatever. Like, God is gracious, he'll forgive, just go ahead and do it. You'll keep your job, everything will be okay. There was some sort of corruption that was taking place as people were taken away from the word of God and the the demand for holiness among Christians and purity. And they were being taught and seduced to say, you know what, sexual immorality, it's okay. There's different situations. Judge not. You don't know their heart. You don't know why they're having sex before marriage. And it's an interesting thing, and we were, uh, my wife and I have been talking about uh, Pastor Ed Taylor in Calvary, Aurora, Colorado. And a great guy, spoke at many conferences, and, uh, and how he was speaking on a leadership podcast. And he says, you know, many people in a church will nod their head and affirm that sex outside of marriage is uh, unbiblical, that it's sinful. But if it was actually time to to bring discipline and calling for repentance of those sins within the community, all of a sudden you're going to face significant backlash. And I think that's true. Uh, It's very interesting. We've just been talking about how you find yourself in intimate times of fellowship with people, which the Bible calls us to. And when you're in those intimate times of fellowship, you begin to see each other's blemishes which we're called to, and when you try to help each other with those blemishes, which we're called to, there's often rejection from that, and people run away. We don't want to be 
corrected by the word of God. We don't want to have even like a very simple level of God chastening us and correcting us so that we can be continue to walk in purity. We run from that. We balk at that. Yet we want to be a church that is committed to holiness in matters of sex. We want to be a church that says, you know what? Sex is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage is reserved for a man and a woman. We want to take these hard lines that the Bible takes in the scriptures. We believe that, that uh, these letters to these churches that we're reading are they're for us today. That we don't let progressivism creep in. That would just say, hey, anything goes. Whatever feels good. Don't step on anyone's toes. When the Bible that we read tells us that the gospel confronts. And it confronts lovingly. And it confronts in a way that will hopefully gently lead people towards truth. And there's times, and we read it recently, There's times that the gospel confronts in a way that is aggressive to pull people away from the fire and out of the fire. And it's tragic to be a part of a progressive society where we can just watch an erosion of the word of God. We can watch a dismissal of the inspiration and inerrancy of the word of God. We can just watch our culture do this with the book. And do this with the book. And even that. Yeah. We set the Bible aside as a culture. Saying that it has no authority. It can't be trusted. There's so many variations. So many manuscripts. We don't do our real deep groundwork. And study what that even means. And sadly. Even last night. As Lindsay and I were going to bed. We read the article. An article. A confession. From one of the church's heroes in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, someone who had a movement, something along the lines of, I hugged courtship adios, something like that was the name of his book, I think. And how now officially he's written that he has divorced his wife. And these things always often go together. I've divorced my wife and I am no longer a Christian. Don't call me a Christian. I don't believe in these things. I think, man, Christianity does not have the market on grace and salvation. There's other ways. There's other means. And I also want to say sorry for speaking out against the LGBTQ community. Um, I should have never done that. I should have never confronted that topic and that issue. And it's sad because this is a person that um, not only did the Christian church just love and value, and we would get the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris, and we would go ahead and read it you know, as teens and about purity in our relationship before marriage. In fact, just five years ago, I was at a radical intensive conference with David Platt with this, with this man, and how in a five-year period, I'm no longer a Christian. Don't call me that. I'm not a Christian. Walk away from this. Biblical Christianity, not me. Don't call me that, Okay. In fact, I embrace all of this other kaleidoscope of faiths and practices, and I even embrace what the Bible would call um, sexual immorality and and, um, unbiblical forms of marriage and relationships. And so what a sobering thing in this day and age to be in the book of Revelation, to be hearing these letters from Jesus to churches, 
saying, you've got to do something about the Jezebels. You've got to do something about the corruption. You've got to do something about the compromise. And of course, we would do it lovingly, and we would do it um, with the word of God. We're going to move faster. I just set my watch for five minutes. Can you give me five minutes? It's hot in here. Okay. My 40-minute clock just went off five minutes ago, so that's five minutes for real, okay? Okay. There's more. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. Man, I've just been reading this section all week, and I just, you know me and my color-codedness of it all, and I got my Bible, and um, I got different colors of pens for different things, and I use pink a lot of times for just the grace of God and the gifts of God, and I had to use pink here. I gave her time to repent. Oh, God, how can you judge not? And how dare you? You know, and it's like, hey, you know, the Lord's not just about sending people to hell. That's not his game. He's about redemption. He's about salvation. He's about grace. I've given her time to repent. And I believe that's a word for our culture, our church today. People who, you know, gosh, guys, I hear it all. I see it all. I know People are sleeping together outside of marriage, even within this church. I know people are living together before marriage. I know that people are saying they're married and they're not married and they're living together. It's all a load of poo, okay? It's garbage. And we just let it, oh, whatever, you know, do what you want, you know. No. All right, let's come back to biblical morality for the glory of God. Let's come to repentance to change our mind about morality within our body. And the sad thing about Jezebel, she said no. She said no. That's often church discipline. You lovingly help people try to work to repentance, and many times they say no. Nope, don't want to repent. Nope, want to continue living on in sin. Um, But God in his grace gives those opportunities to repent. I would just have you write in your notes, 2 Peter 3, 9, that the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he is not wanting anybody to perish. He's wanting everyone to come to repentance. He's giving us time to repent. I want you to write down Ezekiel 33, 11, where he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Oh, but I have pleasure that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil way. I got no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I got no Pleasure in people with the future of hell. Consider the long-suffering of our Lord. It's salvation, 2 Peter 3.15 says. The Lord always prefers repentance and pardon over punishment. Charles Spurgeon said, God loves us far too much to ever let one of his children sin successfully. They were trying to, I'm just going to go ahead and sin. This is not working out the way that I want it to. And then we get all ticked off because we want, I'm just going to make it happen. And the Lord's like, it's going to be really miserable for you. Because I chasten those that I love, like a good father. It's going to be really rough for you if you don't repent. And we're going to see that for Jezebel and her children. It goes on to say, and by the way, I don't have time today. Romans 2, 4 through 11. Go there, read it at lunch with your family. Consider the long-suffering of the Lord. Romans 2, 4 through 11. All throughout Revelation, we're going to read of 
the nations and the kings not repenting of the works of their hand, even though the Lord is correcting them. And in verse 22 here, it says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And so perhaps the sick bed is uh, STDs and the, and the such. Others say, man, the ultimate sick bed is the judgment and punishment of eternal fire. Some would say that this church is even going to go into the great tribulation, that they're not actually born again, they're not... And I I shouldn't say the church, I would say those that are following Jezebel's practices, that they're not actually born again, and they will not be raptured, they'll go through the time of tribulation. A lot of different thoughts on that. Uh, The Message Bible, who I don't necessarily have a great respect for the man who translated it, but the Greek is good, where it says, I'm about to lay her low along with her partners as they play their sex and religion games. There's going to be a sickbed unless they repent of their deeds. Tribulation will come unless they repent of their deeds. And remember, again, the Lord doesn't want this, and he gives them that option unless they, hey, where's the out here? Don't want the sickbed, repent of your deeds. Don't want great tribulation, repent of your deeds. Goes on to say, I will kill, verse 23, her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Worship team, will you come on up? All the churches need to know that this Jesus, the Son of God, with the eyes like fire, searches the minds and the hearts. This is a biblical thing. Psalm 7, 9, Psalm 26, 2, 1 Samuel 16, 17, 1 Chronicles 28, 9. The Lord searches the heart. John 2, 24, John 21, 17. He searches the hearts. He knows the hearts of men. He knows the deep things of men. The thoughts of the mind, the thoughts of the heart. And he's a God who gives according to their deeds. Now, salvation is not by works. It's by God's grace. But judgment is according to works. And he gives according to works. All throughout the scripture we see this. Verse 24 Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, so to the messenger, so to the pastor, to the angel, to the messenger, to you I say, and to the rest of the church in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine or this teaching, those who have not known the depths of Satan as they say, perhaps there was some sort of a doctrine or a teaching that was well known there called the depths of Satan, a commentator named Mounts believes there may have been something of an actual claim there. The, the thing's called Satan's deep secrets. Has its form of Gnosticism. Has a way to blend in with the labor union so that they can kind of have their foot in both worlds. If you don't have those things, as many as do not have this doctrine or this teaching, he goes on to say, but hold, or rather, he says, I will put on you no other burden. I've got nothing else harsh to say. I've got nothing else. I've got no other requirements for you. Same as in Acts chapter 15. Man, keep yourself pure. Don't eat things offered to idols. Just, that's what I would encourage you towards. No other burden here. Verse 25, the encouragement to the church. But hold fast what you have till I come. Cling to what is good. Cling to those good things, the 
Verse 19, the works, the love, the service, the faith, the patience, good works. Cling to those things. Cling to me. Verse 26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. How long should we keep these works? How long should we labor for Jesus, with Jesus, in relationship with Jesus? Hey, as long as you get a good year out of your life, right after you go to the Billy Graham crusade, you're set for life. You can live however you want. I would say, hey, love Jesus and do whatever you want. Because whatever you want will line up with Jesus. Keep it till the end. Keep the works of Christ till the end. And if you overcome doing that, I will give you power over the nations. An interesting eschatological idea that the Christians will rule and reign with Jesus. All that he's accomplished in his obedience and having a throne and a kingdom, he's going to share with the saints. It's all throughout the scriptures. We don't think about that too much, do we? We get to rule in part of his kingdom. That is, that is grace. That is the grace of Jesus there. Verse 27, quoting from Psalm 2, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. And Jesus says, that's, that's my thing. I received that from the Father. But I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to share my glory. That's our gracious God, Jesus. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Revelation 22, 16 says, Jesus is the morning star. So what do we get? Overcoming to the end, keeping these things, we get Jesus. That's the best gift prize ever with heaven. Do you know that a heaven without Jesus is actually hell? Heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. We get the morning star. Our reward is Jesus. You guys stand with me. Final verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, give us ears. Remove the wax, the spiritual wax. Lord, let us not be dull of hearing. Let us not be hard of hearing. Soften our hearts today at Calvary Chapel, Prineville. Soften these hearts, Lord. Let's take a moment of just silence before the Lord and let's consider his word of correction to the church in Thyatira. Let's let the the Lord just continue to push that button in our heart that would be that uncomfortable spot of things that will need repentance by the time we leave this place today. And maybe you're living in a place of immorality. Maybe you've practiced immorality. You've not repented. And the Lord would just call you today just with, by his grace and say, I've got such wonderful things in store for you if you'll overcome this. I've got so much for you if you'll overcome, if you'll repent, if you'll turn to me and, and give this to me. Give this relationship to me. Give these substances to me. Give this material to me. Give it to me. Overcome today is his call. And you know, maybe some of us, we, we've lived a life of immorality in our past and we've just kind of moved on, but we've never repented of it. We've never confessed it before the Lord as sin. We've never just asked and received forgiveness for it. Today would be a day for that. 
just during this last song, let's just let the Lord just put his hand, put his touch on areas that we need to confess. We need brothers around us in this area. We need sisters around us in this area. We need just, we need victory. We need overcoming in this campaign against sin. Just the Lord, I believe during this song, he's going to put people on our heart. We need to just surround men, surrounding themselves with men who can help them win this battle against this sin. Women with women, discipleship, purity of heart and mind taking place. Let's let the Lord work on our heart, bring conviction, and, and work out repentance in us during this final song. Go ahead, Johnny.